0: Oh,
1: okay. oh. you're listening listening to hold that thought
0: from arts and sciences at washington university in st louis thank you for listening to hold that thought i'm claire gowan today we're devoting the entire episode to a fascinating and far-ranging conversation between two scholars of religious studies Elaine Pagels, a professor at Princeton and the author of several books, including Revelations, Vision, Prophecy, and Politics in the Book of Revelation, visited Washington University last year. She was interviewed by Lori Mathley kipp professor of religion and politics and director of religious studies here at WashU. In the following conversation, Pagels and Mathley kipp discuss divine justice and vengeance in the book of Revelation. They talk about the ways that these images of the apocalypse have been interpreted across time. And they also go into the more personal side of religious studies and authorship.
2: Well, welcome to Wash U. Um, Elaine, it's really wonderful to have you here.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted.
2: And I wanted to, um, I guess, to start by talking a little bit about the book of Revelation and your book, Revelations, about the book of Revelation, I wonder if we could start by talking about why you chose to write about that book in particular at this point.
1: What happened is th- actually that I hadn't thought too much about that book. It's not a favorite of mine, it's, although it's a very extraordinary book, you know, in many ways enormously visual and enormously popular. But it was when George Bush decided to go into Iraq and invade. He did so using the book of Revelation as a template. There's a lot about that. I can be very specific about it. And I was thinking, how does he take this 2,000-year-old book? What is it about the way it's written? What is it about that that allows someone to to claim to read current events out of it and has allowed people for 2,000 years to read enormously different scenarios out of it? So I was trying to figure that out. And so I began to read it carefully, and I realized there's so much written about the book of Revelation. What business do I have writing another book? This isn't about what it meant. It's about who wrote it, why did he write it this way, and how is it written in such a way that it evokes an enormous cultural response the way it has.
2: So can you tell us a little bit about what the book of Revelation is?
1: Yes, I mean, there's one book in the New Testament called the book of Revelation. One book in the Bible. It's the strangest book there is. It's the most challenging. It always has been. But it's the one at the end of the New Testament, which picks up a lot of the Hebrew prophecies, about when is the end of the world coming? And how will everything end? You know, we start with Genesis at the beginning of the Bible, and the last book is about the end of time. And the book of Revelation is a series of prophetic dreams, in which a prophet claims to have been taken up into heaven and seen all kinds of amazing things and seen God's judgment coming on the earth, seen the destruction of the world and, and then the recreation of the world, destruction of the damned and, and, and the blessing of the righteous, uh, justice finally done on earth. It's an amazing book and it has been read by people for 2,000 years as a book about hope for justice when they don't see any and hope for a good ending when they're dealing with a lot of struggle, and and it continues to work that way.
2: You also talk in the book a lot about the other revelations, sort of written around the same time. I wonder if you could say a little more about that.
1: Yes, some people critical of my book said, she doesn't even know that it's revelation. It's not revelations. <laughs> but of course, I wasn't writing simply about the book in the New Testament. I realized that Rather, suddenly I thought, wait a minute, there were other Gnostic Gospels besides the New Testament Gospels, and there were other Revelations, lots of them. Lots of the texts found with the secret Gospels uh, in Egypt are Revelation texts. What makes them different? Why is this one in the New Testament?
2: Why is it in the New Testament? Can Can you say more about why you think that's the one that
1: ended up being canonized? It's different from almost all the others, in the sense that it's about, as you know, it's about the end of the world, it's about the judgment of evildoers. I think it's because in the second century, it it, it spoke very deeply to Christians who were, who were being arrested and tortured and seeing their fellow Christians executed for being Christians. And when they saw that, they understood how John of Patmos hated the Romans, hated the Roman Empire, and prophesied that it was going to be totally destroyed in the Last Judgment. And, and they wanted to see that. It was the hope, only hope they had because Christians were helpless against the power of Rome. So I think it's the martyrs and the martyrdoms that made this book speak so powerfully about, well, even though Rome is overwhelming force and you have no way to contest it god will destroy them.
2: You describe I mean, maybe this gets or gets at what you've already said but you describe John's sort of vision in that as wartime literature. Yes. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how war might have influenced his
1: beliefs about the messiah and what that meant. Well, indeed. I mean, it's so clear that We think this man is a refugee from the Jewish War of 66 to 70 CE, the first century. And my own view is that, you know, when you read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, um, Mark says that Jesus prophesied that after his death within a generation, there would be terrible, terrible war, such suffering as the world has never seen, and Jerusalem would be surrounded with armies and the holy places would be desecrated and horrible things were going to happen. And Mark must have believed that he prophesied these things. Some of us were told in graduate school, well, he couldn't have known, so it was just added later. But it makes no sense that Mark would write with such conviction, or that John of Patmos would write with such conviction, unless he deeply believed that Jesus had prophesied it, and the impossible had happened. So so that book comes out of Seeing his people destroyed, the holy city of Jerusalem reduced to absolute smoldering rubble when the temple was destroyed. I mean, today, you know, you go to Jerusalem and you see the, the rubble that once was the great temple of God. John was so distraught by that, I think, that he wrote this prophecy in the conviction that God would not allow the evildoers to prevail forever. hmm so, was
2: this more about retribution or a promise of divine justice, or both?
1: Well, they're not so different in this book, are they? <laughs> right. I mean, this is what the prophets said. I mean, this is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 27 and, you know, in different parts of Isaiah 60. It's it's all about Israel's enemies will be punished and they'll be humiliated, they'll be brought down. The, the, the nations that oppressed you will bow down to you. They'll all come and give homage to the Lord's Messiah, which means the King of Israel. So the prophecy in Revelation actually is that the Messiah, which would be Jesus, will rule in Jerusalem, come down from heaven. Jerusalem will descend from heaven, creating a new heaven and new earth right here. And all the nations of the earth will come toward the center of the universe, which will be Jerusalem. So it's quite a literal prophecy Yes, divine justice and divine retribution. John would say, "What's the difference?" And reconciliation, and at the end of the day, in a yes. sense, yes, because the nations are invited in. Mm-hmm. So there are,
2: um, and this is a, a theme that you s- have seen, and you allude to the fact that this carries on throughout history. This is not obviously this text that's been around for two thousand years, has resonated with a lo- in a lot of different political and social situations. Do you think, um, and this is perhaps speculative on your part, but do you think that's just uh, sort of a human tendency to want to find either retribution
1: or justice in such situations? Oh, yes. You know, a lot of people recently, it's become sort of chic for academics to talk about the violence in the Bible and the violence in the book of Revelation. And, yeah, this is a violent book. I mean, there's a lot not to like about it. But I thought, I don't think anyone could understand it as well as someone, say, in Syria, whose town, whose home, whose family neighborhood had been bombed and destroyed and ravaged deliberately by foreign armies. I mean, somebody in that situation, I can't imagine it, but people in that situation, I think, would immediately identify with this. Hmm. So
2: it continues to be, as you said, not just a sort of a way to express anger and
1: vengeance, but also to provide hope. Anger and vengeance is something the Lord promises in the Hebrew Bible against people who do the wrong thing. And it's not inappropriate to hope for it, right? Yeah, I know. I think we've forgotten some of that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um, It's justice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when the abolitionists like John Brown Invoke this book. Yes. Uh, Julia Ward Howe, writing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, invoked this book against America's sin of slavery. It's justice they want, and it's retribution.
2: Well, it also can, um, I think, if you, as you've sort of alluded to, justify
1: more sort of horrific
2: action down the road from people who feel that they are called by God to sort of be, the, be part of God's army uh, as a way of bringing about... the the devastation
1: of their enemies. Oh, indeed. And it's been used that way, as you know. See, the difference, I guess, Laurie, is some people suggest whether the people receiving the message of the apocalypse are the victims of violence or are the perpetrators. And it's been used both ways. What, in particular, do you think there is about the images
2: here that are so resonant? Is it the language? Is it just
1: these, these striking images or all of the above? You know, I think you're right. I think it is the images. Any child could dream about dragons and monsters and witches and evil women drinking blood. Like, I mean, you see this in Disney movies. It's not the horror of Babylon, but... You see some pretty horrific villains. right? Closer to Grimm's fairy tales, maybe. <laughs> yeah, this is stuff of nightmares, and and what makes it so easy to plug into any conflict is that these are just images of horror, and and when Revelation talks about the evildoers, it doesn't so much tell you what they do; it just says the dogs, the evildoers, the the filthy, the 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 lascivious. You know, so this is just. You can apply that to anyone you don't like. Right, a generic <laughs> allegory. That it's a can generic be like allegory, <laughs> and, you know, it's good against evil. And, of course, we're good and you're evil, I mean, depending on whoever you or we are or think we are. That's what intrigued me most, how it can be used in the same conflict on both sides. Right.
2: Yeah, how, how uh, and maybe this is just, uh, again, speculation on your part, but how do you break that, cycle of justification and retribution
1: in the world? Well, you know, when I was working on the book on the origin of Satan, I... I became convinced that I couldn't use the word evil about a person. I can use it about actions. They're definitely evil actions, there's no question. But to call a whole group of people evil or good is a habit in the culture. It's very much enshrined in the Bible. It's a way of interpreting conflict. There has to be a good and evil side, right? Mm-hmm. But no, there are, there often isn't. It's It's two parties with different issues, different concerns, different needs, sometimes conflicting ones. So I just think that ancient habit, which is inculcated by books like this is one that we can't afford in the 21st century without destroying the planet. You know? So, I th- that's why I, w- I wanted people to become aware that that's what this book does. It teaches people to interpret conflict that way. And it's not the only way to interpret conflict. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think maybe we ought to unlearn it
2: so uh, uh, one of the striking things to me about your work is how uh, you have such an ability to humanize early Christians. Um, there, I consider your text to be deeply human works, even though they're about texts, if that makes sense. And you um, have found ways to link your own questions about inspiration, truth, and evil to the concerns of writers. In antiquity. And I wonder how you found your, your readers
1: and listeners responding to that. Do they make the connections as well? Oh, I think so. You know, you see, I write about texts, you do too. The texts are about people and their concerns, you know, and, and they raise concerns that if they weren't ones that we share to some extent or in slightly different language or maybe different conceptual frameworks, we wouldn't be even interested in reading that stuff. Um, I got fascinated by the history of religion because it does engage issues that do concern me, and I never write about anything that doesn't. So I, I think that that's palpable.
2: As academics, I think we all um, deal with other academics who see the, the popularity of our work as a negative thing, or that that's some, somehow seen as a bad thing to, do, to be popular among, you know, in broader audiences. Um, and it seems to me that your work, as you've just been saying, opens up the study of late antiquity to new kinds of questions, and it's helped renew appreciation of religious studies and what religious studies as a field um, can be all about, that it's not just Bible study or Sunday school, but yeah. that it's an intellectual pursuit of fundamental uh, relevance to contemporary concerns. Um, how do you think scholars in the field um, can do more to enable those kinds of communications to it's happen? It's a great
1: question. I, I, I think what gives popularizing a bad name is when people simply write what my late husband used to call conventional wisdom in the field as if it were a discovery. Like, guess what? There are two versions of creation in Genesis. Wow. You know, or the martyrdom is, is not such a big issue because, after all, there weren't that many martyrs. We all know that. So, so I decided I, I'm never going to write what everybody knows and just try to make it sound like, I'm a big deal for knowing it. I only wanted to write original work. And the reason I did it for other audiences is that my husband was a physicist, and his friends thought my field was just really weird. And I wanted to say, but you know, it's really very exciting. They thought it was Sunday sort of, you know, she's just hooked on Sunday school or something. And I wanted to say, no, this is really exciting stuff. So I was writing for people who were physicists and dentists and conductors on trains or anybody who'd be interested in the subject who just didn't happen to be in my field. It's not a matter of condescending because these are people who know a lot about things I know nothing about. And it's not about just conventional wisdom. It's trying to share the excitement of the discoveries we make. With people who wouldn't otherwise have access to them if we don't write it in a way that they can read,
2: that takes real talent I mean I think it takes a, a, a an incredible kind of talent to be able to sort of render in, in language that's comprehensible. you know we get stuck in our jargon in, in various fields and we
1: do Laurie, but it's just the same as teaching when you're teaching, you can't use jargon you have to think what is this how does the student come to this text, and how do they how would they look at that? what would they think is odd mm-hmm. so we we try to speak to them yeah when you um, began to write
2: your academic the, your academic work, did you have other kinds of models of writing in your head that what reading had you done that really excited you in the way that it approached
1: subjects? that's an interesting question. Um, The Gnostic Gospels was dedicated to two friends. One is a poet, and the other is a playwright. And we were all in a dance group together, improvising. And I felt that my work was a lot like theirs. It's different. It's not fiction. Because it's responsible to data. But it does take imagination, and it does take working with a craft, you know, Mm -hmm. of trying to write well. Mm -hmm. So, I still do that. Just endless drafts because to try to make writing as, as clear as possible.
2: Yeah, sometimes I find that for me the best models uh, for my my writing are not in my field at all, but are f- and what, I, then I can. What do you find? Uh, fiction sometimes. F- fiction and poetry uh, are, have have both been really important to sort of how I think about plotting a, a, a book. Um, Jane Austen, I love Jane Austen. There's something about clarity of writing and precision of writing that. Um, I've tried to, not that I could model her or any other great authors, but I think I, I try to think about the writing task not just as a task of conveying information, but of rendering it in a narrative that is going to be compelling.
1: Yes, I mean, I particularly like books like one by Eric Kandel called When Memory Comes. He's a neurologist who writes about... Why he's a neurologist? Why he writes about memory? I don't know if you know his work, but it started when he was six years old, and his family had to leave Germany because they were Jews. And he remembers, and it's a lot about memory and what memory means to him, and what memory means to his people. and And then he writes about how he became a neurologist. Um, I recently read Oliver Sacks' book about the River of Consciousness, which talks about how, as a child, he was interested in in outdoors and. And how we perceive, and I find that very interesting—the way people's curiosity is sparked by, by whatever. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Sometimes I think this is what we we miss in, the the sort of the disciplinary focus of our universities and our work into these categories of science and humanities uh, and the arts—that we miss the fact that. I think for most of us, we're inspired by in a lot of different ways, by a lot of different fields. And the best scholars like you, uh, you know, draw from physics or from models from neuroscience or other places to sort of get ideas for how to convey information and how to communicate.
1: I think that may be. It's also, one of my graduate students was startled. when I talked about the connection between the events in my life and, and the, what I'm writing. And she sort of thought, well, history, you're not supposed to clearly admit that you have a personal stake in it. And I thought, if you don't have a personal stake in it, whether you're writing about Shakespeare or Mozart or World War II or China or French poetry, there's some way that this catches you, uh, that it speaks to something that matters. And how do you talk about that? You don't have to talk autobiographically, but you have to talk about what matters about it. Actually, and I just finished writing about why I do the work I do. A very short book. It's called Why Religion, A Personal Story, and it's why I write. Huh. And and why I write this. And why I love to write this. Oh, fantastic!
2: Well, I think in religious studies, in particular, it's been uh, a sticky issue as the field, you know, since the '60s, the field has tried to define itself over against the study of theology or what goes on in seminaries, and you know, the professional study of religion uh, has it's moved. Religious studies has moved so far toward trying to claim a stance of objectivity that it's hard to know how to find your way back to that place, right, well, where you can talk true. about what you love about this,
1: even if it's not, you know, a part of your own tradition. You know, I didn't think of it just in our field, but say in Princeton, there's the Institute for Advanced Study, and it was set up by people who didn't like the humanities. They wanted only science, so they have social science, they have physical science, physics, and, and they have mathematics, and they have history. Now, nobody told them that history isn't a science, at least the way I do it is <laughs> not. I mean... History historians used to pretend it was objective. And I'm not saying there aren't criteria or that there are no facts because there are, but rather that that history is interpretation and I I never thought that it was a science and I think pretending that it is 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 a lack of humility, you know, because my perspective like anyone's is shaped by particular situations, events. Yes.
2: Well, it, and it teeters, I think history in particular, teeters on the edge of being defined either as a hu, you know, humanistic discipline or as a social science. So at different universities where I've, I've taught, it's under the purview of the humanities, and in other places, it's been part of the social sciences, um, in part because it does both. And of course, religious studies is even more interdisciplinary than that, you know, drawing from the arts or from music or from the sciences and how you know how we can talk about those interdisciplinary fields. Um, It seems to me you have to talk about what what excites you about them and what you know what perspective you bring to
1: that study. Yeah I mean you need not necessarily talk in the first person about it but to convey what what is exciting about it is obviously what matters.
0: Thank you to Lori Maffly Kipp and Elaine Pagels for joining Hold That Thought. To hear more from Mathley Kipp, head to the archives for our 2014 episode, The Mormon Citizen. You can find that episode as well as many other ideas to explore at holdthatthought.wustl.edu or Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.